1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. I want to be very uh, simple and very brief this evening and just give you something that I hope will be an encouragement and a help. I don't think it's fitting uh, that Christmas go by and we talk about our Lord's first coming without talking about His second coming. Because without His second coming, His first coming would have meant nothing. And uh, certainly without His first coming, there wouldn't have been a second coming. So they go uh, hand in hand. I believe it's only fair to deal with both of them if you're going to deal with one of them. Uh, look with me in First Thessalonians chapter number 4, and I want you to look with me at verse number 13. The Bible says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Now, we know that's Bible language for those that know the Lord and have died. Uh, the Bible likens it to a sleep. Now, that is not referring to a sleep of consciousness, but a sleep of the body. It says, uh, which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. The Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Would you pray with me tonight? Heavenly Father, I want to thank You for Your Word. Lord, help us to not take it lightly. Help it to not just be another book on our bookshelf, or on our coffee table. The Lord, help it to be the bread from heaven, the manna for our souls day by day. And I pray that tonight as we're gathered, we'd not gather around personality, but we gather around Your Word. We'd not gather around denominationalism, but we gather around Your Word. And that tonight as we hear Your Word, we'd hear from You, that You'd speak to hearts and give the comfort and conviction that's desperately needed. If there's one amongst us that's lost without Christ, show them they're lost situation. Show them the cross of Calvary. And Lord, I pray that You'd encourage those that need to be encouraged this evening, that You'd burden those that need to be burdened, Lord, and we'll be sure to give You the thanks and the honor and praise and glory. Father, we love and thank You for it. In Christ's name, Amen. I believe this is one of the most familiar passages in all the Word of God, or at least it is to me, and I'm sure to many of you that it is as well. As we study this passage, there's three main things that I see, and I preach this as a funeral message before. Uh, but you know, the only way that a man knows how to die right is if he's lived right. And the very grace that will help us in our times of dying is the grace that's given to us in our time of living. Everything the Christian does is by grace and in light of the Word of God. This is Paul's writing this passage to the church at Thessalonica. I believe it's important for us to understand that he is combating false doctrine. There's a notion permeating the church today, and uh, it's permeating both large churches and small churches, uh, both contemporary churches and some old-fashioned churches, that doctrine is a destructive thing to be shied away from, and that doctrine should not be dealt with. Now, many times statements like that are made in ignorance, because anybody that studies the Word of God will know that the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? Well, it's profitable for a lot of things, but the first thing it's profitable for is for doctrine. Every single passage of the Word of God teaches us something. Some passages teach us many things. 
Other passages don't teach us as much, but every passage in the Word of God teaches us something. And in this passage, Paul is battling heretical doctrine uh, from many in the church that day that were teaching that uh, the resurrection had already passed and that those that were alive at that time had just missed it. They were teaching that uh, some that were alive at that time in Christ would somehow prevent the Lord from returning and other doctrines. You know, mankind's always been fascinated with the end of the world. Always. And to this day, that's still the case. But I like that God takes a scriptural and sensible and clear approach to dispelling these doctrines. And in these few verses, I want to point out a couple of things. In verse 13, it says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Now notice this, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. I want to say the first thing we see in this passage is the peace that the believer has. You know, death is a part of life. It seems like a uh, paradox, but it's the truth. In the past few weeks, it seems like death has been prevalent. At least in my life it has, in the lives of those that are close to me. And no doubt when you look around at this world, death is ever-present. I want to ask you a simple question, but it may not have a simple answer to you. What does death mean to you? What does death mean to you? You see, that question defines so much of what we believe, it can't hardly be expressed. There's no question what life means to many. It means family, it means existence, it means consciousness, it means happiness, it means joy, it means sorrow, it means despair. But what death means to us is dependent wholly upon what we believe. Extra, not extra scriptural, but extraneous of ourselves. You see, no man has a first-hand experience of death. No man can determine what they believe about death because they've been there. So we must go to an outside source for what we believe about death. Nobody's experienced it and come back to speak of it, at least not in our lifetime. And so we must have an opinion about it. If you talk to people about what happens after death, you'll get a myriad of answers. And let me say that the majority of answers that you will get are based upon the perceptions and emotions and biases of the human heart. People don't want to imagine that there could be eternal destruction. People don't want to imagine that there could be eternal damnation. But the Word of God teaches us clearly that for those that die without Christ, eternal damnation is their destiny. We as believers have formed our opinion as we should with anything based upon the Word of God. What does God teach? And let me say there's a desire for God on God's behalf for us to understand these things. He says He would not have us to be ignorant. Let me say that this passage doesn't only deal with death, but it deals with the return of our Lord. And so there's peace found not only in knowing that heaven's a reality, but in knowing that the King of heaven is coming for His own. The Bible says that you would sorrow not as others which have no hope. In this passage, we're given the hope of the soon return of our Lord and Savior, and that should affect the way that we observe death. You know, I've made this statement before to people at funerals and times when I've gone to counsel in the home when someone's died. There's nothing wrong with sorrowing. The Bible's very clear about that. There's a time for weeping. There's a time for sorrow. There's nothing wrong with grieving. The Bible does not say that we would not sorrow, but that we would sorrow not as others, which have no hope. There's a framework and a context into which death must be put in the heart and mind and life 
of the believer. And it's defined for us by one word in this passage. It's that word, asleep. Boy, that puts a whole different connotation on what death means, doesn't it? You see, when a person goes to sleep, most of the time, they're expecting to wake up. If a man goes to sleep and he wakes back up, the only reason is because the Lord's allowed him to do so. That's what the psalmist says. He said, I both laid me down and slept and awoke because the Lord sustained me. And so we understand that in this imagery, the notion of sleeping in Christ is something that is relative only to the grace of God in our lives. We're saved by grace. And if we have a hope beyond the grave, then it is only because of the grace of God. But I would note, and I already mentioned this, that this sleep that is being spoken of is not referring to a sleep of consciousness. Now, that may not be important to you right now, but it's important to a lot of people, and it may be important to you someday, because there's some people that believe in what has been termed theologically as a soul sleep. In other words, the notion that when a man dies, he is just non-conscious until the return of our Lord. Let me say that I resoundingly refute that false doctrine. You say, preacher, what do you base your refutation of that on? Well, ju just a little thing like uh, the Word of God. It says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And the Bible tells us, and I know not whether uh, when it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, I don't know whether that means in a twinkling as it's going to be when our Lord returns. I do not know if that means it will be carried and swept across death's doorway. I do not know what that means, but I do know this, that it denotes that the, uh, the focus and the priority and the emphasis when death comes to the believer is in immediate leaving of the body and presence with the Lord. You say, well, maybe we're with the Lord, but we're not conscious of it. Well, that wouldn't do much good, would it? <laughs> God's Word's pretty common sense. That wouldn't do much good, would it? But you see, this term asleep denotes to us uh, the temporary nature of separation and death for the believer. It's hard that we have to face those things, but our hope and our comfort as it relates to those that we love is this. Those that die in the Lord are not gone. They're simply not present. And there's a difference. When a person's gone, they're gone for good. When a person is not present, you know and trust that one day you will see him again. And this passage tells us that they're merely asleep. They've just said goodnight and they'll see us in the morning. It's not over. It's merely a period in between the time in which we've seen them till we'll see them again. We have peace in that. Now you say, well, preacher, that's not very electrifying. That doesn't make me want to do backflips. Wait till you lose someone. Wait till you have to believe in something about death. The truth of the matter is, many times doctrines are put in the back seat of our theological cars or put into the trunk until we have a collision or a flat tire. Many times what we believe doesn't really matter in our day-to-day -day life. Now, it should, mind you, it should. But the truth of the matter is, there's many that go day-to-day -day never giving a thought to the reality of heaven. But you wait till you watch the dirt fall in over the grave. You wait until you stand by the casket it's going to matter then what you believe about these things. And the Bible gives us the comfort and the surety that we can have peace through those matters because we know that we're sorrowing not because of where they're at, but because of where they're not. We're not sorrowing because they're gone. We're not sorrowing because they're in torment. We're not sorrowing because we'll never see them again. But our sorrow is tempered with the understanding that heaven is real 
and that all of the Word of God is true. We see a peace in this passage. And I'm thankful that we can have that peace. The explanation for it is in verse 14. It says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which also, also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. And so we know that those that we've lost are with the Lord. They're happy, more eternally happy than we could ever imagine. The truth of the matter is, if we really understood heaven like we ought to, the last thing in the world we'd want to do is have them back. The last thing in the world we'd want to do is have them back. When they have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord and been in His presence. And I promise you this, and I hope it don't hurt your feelings, but they wouldn't want to come back either. In the joy of the Lord, no doubt they would not seek to depart. But they'd wish to stay there ever at His feet, bathing in worship to the Almighty God. So we see a peace in this passage. But I want to say we not only see a peace, and I like that no matter how beautiful, no matter how eloquent the Word of God is, there's sensibility to the Word of God as well. We see a pattern. God gives us this hope, but He explains what this hope is as well. It says in verse 15, For this we say unto you by the Word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Look at verse 17. And of course, we'll hit verse 16 here in a moment. But it says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. The book of 1 Corinthians tells us in verse or in chapter 15 that the pattern for the resurrection of the saint is that of the resurrection of our Lord. The Bible says that uh, everyone will be resurrected one day at some point. The lost will be resurrected and the saved will be resurrected. Not at the same time, the Scripture teaches. Uh, I do not believe in a general resurrection. But the Bible teaches clearly two separate and distinct resurrections. But there's a pattern for those that know the Lord. And the Bible says that Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, Christ was the first one to raise from the dead. And after our Lord, the Bible says uh, that those which are dead in Christ will rise. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air. The old preachers used to say, why do you reckon they have to rise first? And everybody would say, well, they got six feet farther to go than you or I. I don't know that that's true, but what we find in this passage is that there's rhyme and reason, sensibility, logic, and pattern to the coming of our Lord and to the resurrection of, of the saints. It's not just merely uh, ethereal... Uh, imagination. It's not just merely stoic thought and imagery, but it is an understanding that these things have been foreordained from the beginning of time. Just as our Lord was raised from the dead, so also will be those that are dead in Christ. You say, what does that pattern mean? Well, people differ about this. We can have a fight about it if you want. But uh, I believe that just as our Lord was resurrected, the same physical qualities and spiritual qualities will be present with us as well. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, some, some people have the notion that uh, in heaven uh, we're going to live eternally and all be floating around like a bunch of ghosts. Well, there's a lot of problems with that notion. The first is that we won't spend eternity in heaven. The Bible teaches clearly, and I spoke about it this morning, that we'll spend eternity on a new earth, is what the Bible teaches. Secondly, this notion that we'll be disembodied spirits. No, no, friend, you read the account of our Lord's resurrection and you find that He was spiritual enough that he, could, uh, that he could travel through a closed and locked door. But it's physical enough that he could sit down and eat with his disciples. Physical enough that he could hold his hands out and say, touch my hands, touch my side. You see, it's not just a state of disembodied spiritism, but it is an actual physical body 
that's on a spiritual plane as well. There's a lot I can't explain about it. But let me just give you a couple qualities I think will encourage you. Let me say that a resurrected body will have no sin. Aren't you thankful? Boy, you know, I don't know about you. You all, you all are probably better than me. But I, did you know I struggle with sin sometimes? You know, there's times I want to do wrong. Times I want to fail the Lord. You know why that is, don't you? It's not old Flip Wilson. The devil didn't make me do it. It's my sin nature. It's my flesh. It's the fact that within me lives the old man still. And he desires to do wrong and to do wickedly. And Paul spoke of this struggle in the book of Romans. What's going to be the answer? Paul cried out after several verses of uh, tongue-tying and mind-bending theology of saying that, uh, what I would, that do I not, and what I would not, that do I. And he shows the inner struggle. And finally, in desperation, he cries out and says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And he says, I thank God through my Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you who will deliver us, our Lord, when He returns. No more sin nature, no more inclination to do wickedly and to do wrong. I want to say not only is there uh, no sin... Uh, but I want to say that there is no sorrow or no feebleness or frailty. Uh, you know, the truth is, I believe whenever we study the new Israel and the new earth, I know we like to think sometimes we're all going to be sitting around in robes singing, uh, but I believe in very much that life will exist as the ages roll. I believe very much that we'll live from day to day. I believe we'll do our share of singing. I believe we'll do our share of shouting. But do you know that in that time, the Bible speaks of our eating, but it doesn't speak of our hungering. And it speaks of our drinking water and drinking things of that nature, but it doesn't speak of our thirsting. And the frailty of the body and the tiredness that we suffer and face will no longer plague us. How many of you get tired? How many of you get tired of getting tired? I'm right there with you. And I'm thankful that one of these days when our Lord delivers us, no longer will we have to suffer with frailty and feebleness. I'm thankful that the aches and the pains will no longer be there. I'm thankful that we'll have the strength that we need. You know, when God instituted work, uh, work was not a wicked thing. Work was not instituted because man sinned and fell. The provision and providing of himself by toiling and labor was given as a curse upon mankind. But work and the tending of the garden was not a curse. The Bible says that God took the man, planted him in the garden to tend it, to keep it. Work is not bad in and of itself. Let, let's test the generational gap here. How many of you like feeling like you've put in a good day's work? There's an enjoyment about it. Some of you said, nope, <laughs> not worth it. There's an enjoyment about it. Uh, the thing that dampens it and taints it is the fact that we buy it with the price of our own weakness and weariness. One of these days, we won't have to worry about that. I want to give you a third thing. I want to say that there'll be no, no sickness anymore. You know, uh, we, we pastor congregation. Uh, I pastor a congregation that, that has a few old people in it. Did you know that? I won't name names, but there are a few old people in the church. And not only are there a few old people, but there's people that are sick too, and plagued with sickness. It breaks your heart sometimes, and, and I, don't, I don't know that you'll understand what it means as a pastor unless you've done that, to see people hurting the way that they do. God gives you a heart for your people, and it hurts you to see people sick. 
people that have a heart to serve the Lord and do right and have uh, the desire but just not the wherewithal because of their illness. It seems like there's so many plagued with cancers and, and illnesses and sicknesses. It breaks your heart to see people in that shape. Do you know that sickness is enough to drive a man crazy? It really is. But I'm comforted by the notion and by the hope, by the promise that one of these days all sickness is going to be done away with. Whether they can figure out a way to cure it or not, our Lord will do away with it. No sorrow, no sickness, no pain. There's a fourth thing. I'm glad there won't be any sorrow or separation over there. The songwriter said no parting over there. It's hard to be apart from those that we love. It's hard to lose those that we love. And there's always an intrinsic fear within the heart of humanity about losing those that we love. If we were to be honest, most of us would admit that there is a fear in our hearts that something could happen to our loved ones, that they could be separated from us in some way, that they could grow sick, that they could go missing, that they could die. But I'm thankful that when our Lord comes back for His own, we'll be assured of there being no separation from those that have died in the Lord. There's a shocking and startling thought, though. And that's that there will be separation from those that don't know the Lord. Boy, I wouldn't love you if I didn't be honest enough to tell you that if you have family members that die without Christ, you won't spend eternity with them. There'll come no time when they've paid a debt. You won't pray them out. You won't pay them out. You'll be eternally separated from them. I don't know that the weight of that thought really sinks to our very souls. If it did, it would burden us to action. But the fact is, we have loved ones, and I have loved ones, and I'm sure you have loved ones. But if the Lord should return right now, if they should die without Christ today, that we'd never see them again. This hope, this grief that we'll go through is only different because we sorrow not as others which have no hope. It's because of the hope of the blessed coming of our Lord that we have this encouragement. There's a pattern given to us. The Bible says much about the resurrected body, and there's much that is left unsaid. But I want to say finally that there is a promise concerning these things. Look again at verse number 16. The Bible says, For the Lord Himself... I don't know if you underline in your Bible, but if you do underline that word Himself, it's one of the sweetest thoughts in all the Word of God. Not the Lord will send someone. Not the Lord will call for us. But just as He's always done, when we couldn't get to Him, He came to where we were. The Lord Himself. Not another. Not a servant. Not an angel. But the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. I like that word shout. You know, that's the only time that that particular Greek word is used. And it's not just an inaudible shout or an unintelligible shout, but it has the notion of a shout of incitement and excitement. Almost like a man that's uh, calling to a group of people rowing a boat or someone working a team of oxen. It's a shout of encouragement that's given. I'd just like to say that I believe it's going to get so bad before our Lord returns that we're going to appreciate that shout. <laughs> the Lord's going to thunder from heaven when He shouts. He ain't going to shout like you or me. Oh, it's going to, it's going to shake the mountains, my friend. With a shout, the Bible says, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Trumpets have always been used to call God's people together for assemblies. 
you go through the Old Testament, you'll find a provision for silver trumpets that were to be made. By the way, the, the silver medal always denotes the notion of redemption. In the Old Testament, silver was always connected with redemption. And can I say that there are different kinds of redemption? You say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, just as there are different kinds of salvation. You see, Christ saved me from my sins when I accepted Him. But do you know that every day He's saving me, not re-saving me from my sins, but saving and delivering me from my trials and sorrows, effectually working in my life. Do you know there's coming back, coming a day when He's going to come back and save me from this world? He saved me from my sins. He's saving me from my sorrows. And one day He'll save me from my situation. And redemption is the very same. The Lord in many ways redeemed all of mankind when He paid their sin debt. But that redemption is not effectual in the hearts of every single person. That's why the Bible says He's the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. What does that mean? It means that He's made the way for all to be saved, but He's only effectually the Savior of those that have accepted Him. He's paid the price for the sins of all the world. So in a sense, He's redeemed mankind. Let me say that that's not good enough. He's redeemed me personally. When I accepted Him as my Savior... He redeemed me. Uh, The word redemption has a lot of connotations, but I I think the most plain and simple understanding is the understanding that you and I have today. When you redeem something, if you were to call in on a radio show and win a prize, that prize is won, but it doesn't do you any good until you go down and redeem that prize. It's the notion of taking possession of something. And so I'd like to say that whenever Christ redeemed me, In a lot of ways, I redeemed Him. I took possession of Him just as He took possession of me. But there's coming a day when He's going to take a different kind of possession of me. And when He returns, He's coming to redeem me. It's bought and paid for. I belong to Him, but I'm not with Him yet. But there's coming a day when He's coming back, and I'll be with Him then. The Lord's always used these trumpets of redemption to call His assemblies together and he did so in the old testament with the jewish people and that's why there's a lot of misinterpretation concerning mid and post-tribulation rapture because people take this trumpet to denote the trumpets of judgment in the book of revelation but that's not what it's speaking of but it's speaking rather symbolically of the trumpets in the old testament that would call the assemblies together at the last trump and the dead in christ shall rise first That's a promise we have. I wonder how sure that promise is. It says in verse 17, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. How sure do you think that promise is? Isn't it funny how we pick and choose what we believe from the Word of God? I would propose to you that no man has the authority to go through and tell God what He means. I would propose to you that God says what He means and He means what He says. And I'd propose to you that if you have the authority to go through and take portions out of the Word of God or put portions into the Word of God, the only way you could have that authority is if you were God Himself. I think a lot of people believe that about themselves and that's why they do it. So I'd ask you this question. If we believe John 3.16, why don't we believe 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? And I don't just mean a head knowledge, but I mean an effectual heart and life knowledge. We have the promise that our Lord is returning. I like this phrase, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. 
I would press upon your heart and your mind the understanding tonight that the return of the Lord is imminent. I've spoken of this often, but I'll say it again in case you haven't heard it or were asleep when I said it the first time. That the Bible teaches clearly that our Lord's return is imminent. The Bible says, No man knoweth the day nor the hour. And there's a verse I've always been puzzled by because the Bible says not even the Son of Man knoweth when the day nor the hour is. Now, there's a lot I don't understand about that. There's a lot of answers I couldn't give you. And I can't tell you how that is, that there's something Jesus Christ does not know. But I can tell you why it is that He does not know. The Bible tells us in the book of John, chapter number 15, Christ is speaking to His disciples. And He says, "...Henceforth I call you not servants." For the servant knoweth not what his master doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that the Father hath made known unto me have I made known unto you. And you say, what significance does that have? Well, the Bible says in John chapter number 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Down in verse 14 of that chapter, the Bible says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the nature of the written Word and the living Word are synonymous one with another. So all things that the Father hath made known unto Him, He hath made known unto us. Oh, if the Son of Man doesn't know, then the Scriptures of God don't know either. The answer is not found in the Word of God. You say, oh, but if you look at the Jewish feasts, it doesn't matter. The Son of Man doesn't know. You say, oh, but if you look at the Jubilee years, it doesn't matter. The Son of Man doesn't know. The truth of the matter is, any man that says the Word of God will tell you when the Lord is coming back claims to know more than the Son of God Himself knows. The Bible says what it means and means what it says. So how do we live in light of that? The truth is we ought to live, and let me give you one word, and I want you to write it down if you're taking notes, prepared. Prepared. Not panicked. Prepared. Not cavalier. Prepared. Are we really prepared to meet the Lord? I preached on Wednesday night on that subject. The Bible says that the ministry of John the Baptist was to make a people prepared for the Lord. We examined how that God had structured everything so that if the Jews had chosen to accept Christ as the Messiah... Every prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah could have been fulfilled and allowed a place, an interpretation, understanding of it, even though God in His providence knew they would not accept Him. And so in many ways, uh, as we're looking for the second coming of our Lord, there are certain things that we ought to do to prepare ourselves, the same as the Jewish people needed to prepare themselves. But the word I want you to get is that word prepare. Is your personal walk with Christ where it needs to be for His return? It's not an angel coming. The Lord Himself. Let me ask you something. If you met the Lord today, what do you think He'd say to you? I don't mean that to browbeat you. That's an honest question. If you met the Lord today, what do you think would be the first thing He said to you? Oh, I know. We would, we would pine to think that it would just be that He loves us. Maybe it would be. We'd pine to think that it would be welcome home, and maybe it would be. But can I say to you that the Lord might have a few things to say about the way we've been living too. There might be some things in my life and in your life that the Lord would look at and say, we need to have a talk about this. The Lord might have something to say about how long it's been since we've talked to Him. 
Lord might have something to say about how long it's been since we've let Him talk to us. Lord might have something to say about how long it's been since we've been obedient. I remember whenever I was a child, the most dangerous words that ever came out of my mother's mouth were always, wait till your daddy gets home. You know, how many of you that was growing up for you? And, uh, you know, I was a smart kid. <laughs> I was one of them smart, dumb kids, you know. And so I, I, every, every once in a while I get real sly and real slick and I think to myself, I know what I'm going to do. I know what I'm going to do when daddy gets home. I'm going to run up and I'm going to grab him and I'm going to hug his neck. And I'm going to kiss his jaw and I'm going to tell him how much I love him. I'm going to let him know how much I care about him. And I'm going to tell him how much he means to me. And then maybe he'll be so touched he won't whip the fire out of me. But my daddy used to do something that your daddy probably did. I'd run up to him and I'd go to hug him and he'd stop me and he'd say, Stop. What is it that you've done wrong? <laughs> stop. I know what you're trying to do. You see, the truth of the matter is, and I'm not saying the Lord's going to be harsh with us, but I'm simply saying that Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What was that in the context of? He said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. When is the judgment seat of Christ scheduled on God's calendar? I believe it's scheduled immediately between the death of the saint and the dwelling with God in fellowship in heaven. I believe that's when it's scheduled. I believe when we die, we're immediately with the Lord, but I believe we face the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, what? The judgment. We're going to have to answer for the things that we've done. There's a promise given that the Lord's coming back. What would He say about our lives? What would He say about our commitment? I kind of wonder sometimes if the Lord wouldn't say, you know, I gave so much to you, and you just gave so little to me. And yet your everything was nothing compared to my everything. The truth of the matter is, the majority of Christians give very little to the person that gave his all. When his all was of magnitude infinitely greater than our anything could be. I believe the Lord might have some questions for us. Are you really prepared for the Lord? The Bible says in the Old Testament... Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. Now, I understand that has some prophetic implications concerning the return in power and glory of our Lord. But I believe, too, it applies to the Christian understanding that we're going to have to give an account. I like these words, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Let me end with something a little bit sweet so you don't vote me out. I'm thankful that beyond any judgment of God, if we're saved by the grace of God, we have the comfort of knowing we'll dwell eternally with Him. I'm thankful that none of the Lord's days end in darkness. Our days end in darkness, all of them. The Lord's ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are not our thoughts. And none of the Lord's days end in darkness. I was reading again the account of Peter when he betrayed our Lord. I saw something in that I'd never seen before. Peter made this statement, or Christ made this statement to Peter. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. I have prayed for your faith. prayed for you that thy faith fail not. He made this statement. He said, when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. 
I'd always wondered about what that meant when thou art converted. Had Peter already believed on the Lord? No doubt. The Bible uh, said that when Peter made the statement, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which art in heaven. No doubt Peter was already a believing man. I know Peter didn't have the Holy Ghost dwelling within him, but I don't believe that's what Christ was referring to. When you convert something, it means to change it. It means to transform it. Or it means to turn it around. I believe that what the Lord was saying to Peter is, Peter, you're getting ready to walk away from me. But when you return, strengthen the brethren. I don't know about you, but that swells my heart. To know that the Lord has a plan for our lives, even in the midst of our backsliddenness. Even when the Lord knows we're getting ready to walk away from Him still. He speaks already of our return, of our forgiveness, and of His plan for our lives. None of the Lord's days end in darkness. So shall we ever be with the Lord. But I encourage you tonight, examine your life and ask yourself, am I really prepared for His coming?